0: I'll start this morning with the farm report. uh, I've added 32 chickens to my flock this year, uh, up from three. Uh, So now we're at a total of 35. I ordered 30 from the hatchery, and I got 32. And all 32 have lived all this time, and they have just started laying eggs. So it's very exciting. Uh, They don't always lay where they're supposed to, so you have to go on a bit of a hunt. But, uh, but they're all starting to lay and pretty soon we'll be inundated with eggs. We've already decided that every fellowship dinner from here on out, the Parkses are bringing an egg dish because we're going to pretty soon be getting like three dozen eggs a day. Uh, so it's, 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 but it's fun and, you know, I've had a lot of problems with predators in, in my yard, which is why I was down to three chickens in the first place. And uh, so I built this new coop and these chickens have been staying in this coop, and and I shut them up at night, and all the predator problems I was having were primarily coming last thing in the evening or first thing in the morning. So as long as they're shut up in the coop during those times, we've done really well so far, and hopefully we'll continue to do well, just keeping them secure during the times when predators tend to come into the yard. And also, we put a dog door in so the dog can go out into the yard anytime he wants, and all of this seems to be working pretty well. Now, I let them out during the day to free range, and uh, I didn't do this for the first four months. I kept them pinned up, but after after that, started letting them out and this is this is what we like our chickens to free range because they keep the bug population down, so it's a great it's, a, it's a like a double bonus. I don't have to feed them as much because they eat all the bugs out of the yard and they don't have a yard full of ticks. So uh, it's great, a little symbiosis. But when birds have been caged for four months and then you suddenly let them out to start foraging, they don't necessarily know how to do it. So one of the ways that you teach your chickens how to forage is you get um, cracked corn. Cracked corn doesn't necessarily have all the protein that they need for egg production, but it's like crack for chickens. They go nuts over it, all right? So you get this cracked corn, and you spread that around the yard, and they see you spreading it around the yard, they go chasing after it, and they peck it all up, and in the process of pecking it all up, they learn how to go through the grass and the dirt and everything and, and find more food, and then they do that the rest of the day. But this also has kind of a, a, a side effect. It means that they have learned to associate me with the coming of the cracked corn. So now, any time that I appear in the back window, all of the chickens come running towards the deck. And anytime I'm around, sometimes at my feet, sometimes I'm tripping over them. They're all gathered around just waiting. When, I, when are you going to produce more of that food? and you stop, and they're all gathered around with an expectant look in their eyes. It's a lot of fun. bit of a hassle, but it's a lot of fun. But it has created a bit of a problem for me in the evening, right? Because the objective is to go out and close the coop in the evening so that they're safe overnight and predators cannot get to them. The problem is that they have so associated me with this food that they love that the minute I step out the door, even after they've all gathered in the coop for the evening, they start billowing out of the coop towards me. And now I've got to get them all back in. So I have I have gotten to where I sort of Hide at the back door, blow the door open, run out to the coop, and try to close it before they get out. Because if they get out, and here's the thing that you need to understand if you've not worked with chickens before they're, they're fun, they're amusing, uh, they're, they're the pet that, that makes breakfast for you, but they're kind of dumb. And I, when I say kind of dumb, I'm being generous. Okay, so they get out of the coop. And I come in the evening, replace all the food in their feeder and put it in the coop overnight so that the the high-protein feed is there for them first thing in the morning. Well, that's what they want from me. But as I come out with the feed to go into the coop, they're all coming out of the coop. So I get down to the coop and I put the feeder into the coop, And now the feed, which is what they wanted, is inside the coop, but now they're outside of the coop. And so what do they do? They circle around the coop, looking through the wire at the feed that is now inside the coop. And then there's chickens that are still inside the coop that see the chickens outside of the coop, circling around the coop, and they think, There must be something out there. And so chickens that are in the coop where the food is start leaving the coop to join the chickens that are outside. And so as I am sort of ushering chickens into the coop, more chickens are slipping out and they're just circling around. And so the thing that they want most, they have separated themselves from with their own greed. Now, I tell you this story because I kind of feel this way about how we often translate Revelation. Like, the core of it, the important stuff, is just right there. It's right there. But we're so anxious for something else, for for something else that we think we're going to find, that that we sort of pour out of the space where it is and circle around it. Uh, Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This morning, we're looking at a passage that deals with the thousand years. Specifically, it's a thousand-year reign of Christ. Christ is going to reign for a thousand years um, with this other group of of, uh, the saved. So the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium, those are basically the same thing. And there are four major views of the millennium. And usually when someone teaches or preaches about Revelation, at some point they address the four major views of the millennium. So if you... uh, if you've heard other teachings about revelation you you might be wondering why hasn't he talked any about these these four major views of the millennium yet thought that was the the meat of it thought that was the that was the core stuff the most important part uh, well here's the thing there are some prominent conclusions that we come to about revelation that in my opinion, don't come from a natural reading of the text. You wouldn't necessarily get that. These four major views of the millennium, what what you may have heard of as as either premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. I'm not going to bother to explain those this morning. If you want to know more about them, there's lots of information about them. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably a happier person because this is just confusing and it's difficult. And this assumption that you you need to know all of this stuff and that you need to make a decision and that somehow your faith in Jesus Christ hinges upon it is just frustrating. Um, but for many, for many, the millennium drives the interpretation of Revelation. And this is really, really fascinating when you think about it, because this almost passing mention of a thousand-year reign of Christ that incidentally has not shown up yet in our study of Revelation, is it not even mentioned until chapter 20 out of 22 chapters, This somehow has become the bedrock, the foundation upon which many people base their entire understanding of the Revelation. On the basis of the passage that we're going to look at today, which is really about a chapter and a half, we're asking all these questions about the millennium, and basically the questions come down to this, when does Jesus return? In relationship to this thousand years, so if it's a premillennial view it means he returns at the beginning if it's post millennial it means he returns at the end if it's a millennial it means the millennium's happening right now but it all comes down to this and so we, a- we find ourselves asking all these questions uh, when when will Christ reign for a thousand years? who will reign with him? How will this all work and I'm going to suggest to you this morning that really, we're probably asking the wrong questions. For one thing, we talk about a thousand-year reign of Christ. It suggests something that comes to an end. There is no literal end to Christ's reign over the earth. And this seems, this idea that after the thousand years, like something's different going to happen, uh, seems to be rooted in the relatively modern obsession that we have with leaving earth to go to heaven, as opposed to there being a new heaven and a new earth in which Christ comes and dwells with us. The whole point of messianic hope is that the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdom of Christ. That his reign encompasses everything. That is what we pray for. That his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That all of it comes together. But a lot of people would have us believe that after a thousand years, Jesus will simply abandon the earth and this whole kingdom project and whisk us away to the clouds. So that's kind of my first problem with the way that we think about the millennium. But then I have to remind myself that this is still a dream vision. That everything we're reading has a certain dream logic to it. That there are dream elements. Often these elements have to be explained to us. Sometimes in in the middle of the text, some divine messenger will have to explain the elements will ask John if he understands what he's seeing, and John says, I have no idea what I'm seeing. So there's a sense in which uh, these things are difficult to understand, difficult to interpret, because the things in the vision are not what they appear to be, but they are what they represent. So the woman that is Babylon is not a woman, it is Babylon is the empire, the great cities of men. It is a concept, an idea. Over the course of this passage that we're going to look at today, John apparently witnesses the entire thousand years, which has a very definite dream logic to it, uh, because the passage of time is different. And given the way that Revelation has used numbers up to this point, we have to wonder what this thousand even means. Now, we've seen uh, uh, that seven throughout the text has represented fullness and completeness and peace of God. Whereas three and a half or half of seven represents something that gets cut short, something that is not allowed to come to its fullness or to its completion. We've looked at the number of the beast, which is 666. If you're a math person, you might recognize that 666 is a triangular number. What that means for us non-math people is that if you represent 666 as a series of dots, you can stack them in a perfect triangle that will have 33 dots on each side. That's a triangular number. In contrast to that, The other things that are presented, the heavenly things that are presented to us in the text, tend to be squared and cubed. So the New Jerusalem is 12,000 stadia, deep, wide, and high. It's this cube. The saved are talked about in terms of 144,000 people. That's really interesting because that is 12 squared times... Ten cubed. So a thousand is ten cubed. It's ten times ten times ten, which suggests to us that it has a definite symbolic meaning. The question is, can it have that symbolic meaning and also be a literal 1,000 years? Well, we put this together with the fact that the kingdom of Christ is a forever and ever kingdom, And I come to the conclusion that when is the 1,000 years sort of begs the real question, which is what does the 1,000 years represent? So we come into our text this morning. John presents us with a series of seven visions. Now, given how important seven has been in the text thus far, I have to assume that this seven is important as well but they're not presented to us with a label like the seven trumpets or the seven seals. They're just related as seven visions, all separated by, and I saw. And I saw this, and and I saw that. So it's as if John has gone on an apocalyptic vacation and brought back some snapshots. And he's showing us, and I saw this, and I saw that, I saw the largest ball of twine. And it begins like this, and uh, starts in, in chapter 19 with verse 11. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. So we have this rider on the white horse. This is the first of these seven visions. The rider is followed by an army of heaven. He's got that sword emanating from his mouth that we saw early on in Revelation, which represents the word of God, the truth of God. And on uh, on his robe, on his thigh which probably means down the the trim of his robe, is this title, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In verse 17, there's a a new little vision. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God, So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. So we'll call this the Feast of Carnage. It is a particularly brutal vision. But this scene is offered in contrast to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Which was introduced to us earlier in chapter 19. The angel says anyone who is invited to the wedding feast of the lamb is most certainly blessed. But if you're a human being, you do not want to be at the feast of carnage because it's not even a feast for men. It's a feast for carrion birds who will eat as the angel is announcing the victory of Christ over the evil in the world before the battle has even begun. And then we come to uh, verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. We'll call this the first rebellion. John appears to be referencing the same gathering that he talked about before at Armageddon. You remember how he talked about all the kings and generals and all the armies of the world gathering at Armageddon to fight against God, and then he just leaves it. He just, they, they gather, and then he just kind of walks away from that story. Here we come back to it, And uh, they're all gathered together, and Jesus is finally coming out to fight them. And again, there is no protracted battle. Jesus shows up, and the battle ends. It's just done. It is immediate. It is decisive. And the two beasts that we were introduced to earlier, representing the empire and false religion or idolatry, the two beasts are thrown into the lake of fire. That is the first mention of the lake of fire, and this, this image of the lake of fire is unique to Revelation. It's the only place that it, that, that it shows up. Uh, we're later told that the, this lake of fire is the second death. So the two beasts are thrown into the second death. What's kind of interesting is that the men in this rebellion... It doesn't say anything about them going to the lake of fire at this point. It just says that they are vanquished. They are destroyed by the sword, by the sword in Jesus' mouth. So, so the humanity at this gathering, the kings, the generals, the armies, the horsemen, the, the you know, cavalry and infantry and everybody else, they are destroyed by the word of God. They are laid bare. And then in chapter 20, starting with verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So now we have this vision of the binding of Satan. This is also the first mention of the thousand years. And we're told that Satan is bound to keep him from deceiving the nations. What's curious about this is at this point in the story, we seem to be running out of people. We have witnessed the judgment of the seven bowls. We have seen the fall of the empire, the destruction of uh, Babylon. We've now witnessed a destruction at Armageddon in which all the kings and generals and armies are completely vanquished. So who's left to be the nations? And then we're told that after a thousand years, Satan must be released from this binding for a brief time. What? He must be released? Why? Why does he need to be released? This is all very curious. It goes on in in verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not reserved or received its mark on their foreheads, their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's the second mention. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we'll call this the first resurrection. I find this to be one of the more confusing of the visions in Revelation. And and my confusion begins with the identity of this group. They're characterized in such a unique way. They're beheaded. Which makes you wonder, like, is there like a special, special place in heaven for people who have been beheaded? Is there a special uh, role that they get to play? Uh, It's the second mention of the thousand. These, whatever this group is, they will reign with Christ in that time. And then we're told that this is the first resurrection. How many resurrections are there? And who is in this group? And who is in the group that are called the rest of the dead that will be resurrected at the end of this thousand years? Verse 7 says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore, They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We'll call this the second rebellion because it looks very much like the first. Gog and Magog, seem loosely tied to nations of the same name that appear in the prophet Ezekiel. The, they they have not been political powers uh, since that time, and we really don't know much about them from that time. And so there's always speculation about who might represent Gog and Magog on the current political scene. When I was a kid, it was all about the Soviet Union. And then the Soviet Union fell and we had to find other people to substitute and it became Middle Eastern nations. And so there's always been kind of this running speculation about who Gog and Magog will be in the end times. But the general gist of it is that they are a massive enemy force that is moving against God and against God's people. And once again, they gather just outside of the Holy City, just outside of Jerusalem, just outside of Mount Zion. And so we have essentially something that looks very much like the previous battle at Armageddon, perhaps even at Armageddon again. It's almost an instant replay of the first rebellion, except that at the end, the outcome is different. The defeat, once again, is immediate and decisive, and this time it is Satan who is thrown into the lake of fire. Still, no mention of what happens to the humanity. And then we come to Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne of in him, him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So we'll call this vision the book of life. There are actually multiple books. There is the book of life, and then there are all these record books. Now, if your name is in the book of life, it basically means that your record has been expunged. So if your name is in the book of life, you're not judged by what's in the records. If your name is not in the book of life, then you're judged entirely by the records, and you are then summarily thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And finally, death and Hades themselves, the, the very picture of death, is thrown into the lake of fire. What does all this mean? Well, let's start with the easy part the rider on the white horse is Christ returning that's pretty easy right because jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords his showing up in this way tells us that this is the day of the lord this is prophesied this was all this is the day of the lord and this is the point at which his judgment is unleashed Uh, If these images of judgment are horrific, what we need to understand about them is that they give us the contrast between the love and mercy of God now, because what they illustrate is the fact that if God wants to destroy evil. He could do it at any moment. There's no battle. This is not difficult on Christ's side. When he decides that his patience has run out and evil's time has come to an end, it summarily ends. That's it. So he comes with great power and his victory over evil is immediate and decisive. But it is initially a victory over the living. And so the first rebellion think we can reasonably assume is the judgment of the living. Jesus says in Matthew 24, you remember this passage, which says, well, on that day, two, two men will be working in a field, one will be taken, the other one left behind. Two people will be working a millstone, one will be taken, the other one will be left behind. In our modern popular culture, being left behind is associated with being a sinner, right? Because we have this idea of the rapture and all the good people are taken away. and So what's left behind is all, is all the, the broken and the sinful and the evil. If we look at that passage in context, however, Jesus says it'll be like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew what was coming until it came. And then they were swept away. They were taken away by the waters of the flood. And he says in the same way two people be working alongside each other, one of them will be taken away. So ironically, it's actually the ones left behind who are not being called to this judgment. And so they are swept away by the return of Christ and the and the judgment of the living this god of ours who judges the living and the dead the first resurrection is of the saved the beheaded part makes this rather confusing but i think we have to read that as as john telling us this is the not the class of people that will be part of the first resurrection, but the kind of people. Kind of, the the people who have given their life for Christ, this is the kind of people that will be a part of the first resurrection. Because we look at all the other passages about the resurrection, there's no mention of successive resurrections of God's people. Paul tells us that on the day of the Lord... The dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first resurrection. It is the dead in Christ. These people are also described to us in today's text as being unmarked by the empire, by the beast. They are a kingdom and priest of priests of God, which is exactly who he tells us we will be if we're overcomers. And uh, they are... Undefiled. So here's here's the synopsis, folks. Christ returns. Those who are still alive, who find themselves opposed to God, are swept away by this first judgment. The faithful are left behind and will gather to meet Christ. The dead in Christ rise we all gathered at Zion